Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. The Oxford historian and novelist Harry Sidebottom has published a Sunday Times bestseller every year since 2008. His new book, The Mad Emperor, tells the story of Helio Gabalus, a near-forgotten teenage Roman emperor whose wild deeds make Caligula and Joffrey Baratheon seem pretty timid by comparison. Luke Naylor Perrot spoke to Harry about the strangest four years in the history of the classical world. Their conversation is not safe for work or safe for kids and not recommended to anyone of a sensitive nature. But everyone else is going to love it. Enjoy. Before we get into it, let's let's set the scene. You know, where are we in, in Roman history? The tentpole events that people may know, sort of Caesar, the sacking, the founding, etc. Could you just situate us a little bit? Where are we in the story? Sure. Um, we're in the early 200s AD, so what's usually called the Middle Empire. We're just heading into the great crisis of the empire, which really kicks in in about 235, the reign after Heliogabalus when everything starts going hideously wrong, um, the Romans start losing to barbarian armies, the average reign of an emperor goes down from about nine and a half years to 18 months at most. And um, yeah, it, it's a chaotic time. Heliogabalus comes just before that time. He's the last bit of calm. Well, the, his, his time is calm. He, of course, is the very reverse of calm as he is probably the strangest emperor ever to sit on the throne. That's some foreshadowing there. So uh, th- so the first part of his story, before it gets too chaotic, is dominated by a coup and a civil war. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of moving pieces. But if we could just talk about a little bit about how he got to power and maybe some of the key players and themes that emerge before he sits on the throne. Well, Heliogabalus comes to power in AD 218, He comes to power via a military revolt organised by his grandmother. And this revolt really has no chance at all of succeeding. But against all the odds, it does. And he comes to the throne in Syria and he's put on the throne by his grandmother who wants a probably docile figurehead 14-year-old so she can rule through him. Unfortunately, that's not how it works out because Heliogabalus turns out to be the very reverse of docile and biddable. And once he's on the throne, it takes quite a time to get securely on the throne. It takes him a good 18 months to actually reach Rome. But right from the start, there are all sorts of warning signs. He starts doing almost everything wrong. In the book, The Mad Emperor... I set up this sort of model of very anachronistic, deliberately anachronistic model of four constituencies Roman emperor had to appeal to. And they were the Senate, the, the elite of Rome, the, the plebs of Rome, and the army of Rome, and then the thing called the Familia Caesaris, which is the imperial staff on the palace. Now, the problem any emperor faced was that all four of these constituencies wanted him to do and be very different things. So, for example, the Senate want an emperor to be a first amongst equals. They want him to be a senator amongst senators, 
to go around to theirs for dinner parties, to not have them searched, to only take advice from them, to live a sort of moderate, civilised lifestyle. They, they would call it uh, being a Kivilis princeps, a, a civilised prince. The army wanted a man with a buzz cut and stubbly beard who marched with them, ate their porridge, carried the standards. The army absolutely loathed civilians and civilians fear and loathe the army. So that's a problem instantly. Then there's the plebs of Rome. What they want is a man of the people. They want someone who gives games, who not only puts on chariot racing, gladiatorial contests, things, but actually goes to them, enters into the spirit of them, banters with the crowd. Now, of course, the army hate this, and the senators hate this loss of dignity. And, of course, the plebs also fear the army and also hate the elite. And then, finally, you've got the familiar Caesaris, the imperial staff of slaves and ex-slaves, freedmen. What they want is a rather distant hierarchical figure who's surrounded by court ceremonies and basically controlled by them. And Heliogabalus manages to actually alienate every single one of these constituencies in the most amazing way. It's almost as if he's doing it deliberately. So he humiliates senators. He doesn't take advice from them. He prefers taking advice from charioteers and actors and lower class people. He, once he's on the throne and won the First Civil War, he completely ignores the army, which is a very bad career move for any emperor. When he gives handouts, he always gives more to the plebs than he does to the soldiers, which is a really, really you know, life-shortening move. But there again, he also escapes control of the familiar Caesaris. He, one of the key things about his reign, which I might talk about more, is that he's a religious zealot. And the ceremonies he likes to participate in are religious ones. And from his own ancestral god a god called Elagabal and so he, he's ignoring all the familiar Khazaris's nice court rituals in favour of dressing as an eastern priest and literally dancing at dawn in honour of the risen sun so he manages to upset everyone but he also manages to upset them all at once with probably the religion and probably also his sexuality and attitude to gender there is so much there. I will just say there's a great quote. You mentioned Emperor Tiberius, who says that it's it's like holding a wolf by the ears and, and uh, to be an emperor. And I think you've absolutely described that beautifully. Um, I want to dig into every single thing that you've mentioned there. So let's start off all the way at the beginning. He he was he sort of came to power in Syria, you know. Um, and there's a big question which you which you sort of tackle in the book, which is, you know, he was Syrian. He was hated. Were those two things related? Were, were the Romans racist and, and more generally would we recognize roman racism if we if we went back in time well actually that's an incredibly contentious live scholarly debate and well almost everything is on the one side there is a school of thought that no the romans weren't racist at all but there is a much more convincing school of thought that yes they were their racism is recognizable but it's very different from modern racism there's very little anti-black racism in Roman literature. This really is probably not best explained by them just being nicer people than some modern European or American racist. It's probably best explained by the fact they had other groups to hate. And they are obviously slaves, the, the, the imminent enemy who are all around them and look like them. Their racism tended to 
be built out of quite simple building blocks. Basically, well, really just two. They looked east and they saw Easterners as cowardly, shifty, superstitious, untrustworthy, sexually profligate. The list goes on and on and on in an almost sort of typical, stereotypical way of the the other, the Easterner. Which is quite interesting because that stereotype, ethnographic stereotype, was actually first invented by the classical Greeks in the 400s BC to describe people east of them. And then the Greeks, unfortunately for them, discover that when they've been conquered by the Romans, the Romans are now applying the Easterner series of tropes to the Greeks. If the Romans looked south towards Africa, they tended to again, rather simply, see Easterners. And this was made easy because of Carthage. The Carthaginians are originally Phoenician. They came from the Near East. So the Romans looking east see Easterners. They look south, they see Easterners. And then, of course, they look north. And this is the bit where their racism becomes very different um, from modern racism. Because Northerners to a Roman are big, pale, stupid, violent, drunken, lazy, incapable of rational thought or any progress. And then they look west, and there's really nothing there at all apart from Spain, and the Spaniards get lumped in with Northerners. So they have all the same stereotypes attached to them. So really, Roman racism is built out of these two two block views. And yes, Heliogabalus, because his family was Syrian, and because he's first proclaimed in Syria, uh, in the city of Emesa, which is modern Homs, and also because he is a devotee of a um, Near Eastern god, Elagabal, the sun god, represented by this um, black, conical black stone, which may or may not have been a meteorite. He is seen as an Easterner. And so all the negative stereotypes of Easterners attached to him. I'm not necessarily in the book arguing that that's why people hate him, but it gives them an easy line to hate him. Once you've decided he's bad news then all these things can be lumped on him. And then it can be made a little more specific because his family identified as Phoenician. And the Phoenicians had two particularly bad traits amongst the bad people of Easterners, which one was cruelty. Phoenicians were renownedly cruel, according to the Greeks and Romans. The other is very dubious sexuality and... In fact, to, to play the Phoenician in either Greek or Latin was a euphemism for cunnilingus. And cunnilingus is a very bad thing in traditional Roman sexual mores. So, yeah, he's got a lot stacked up against him because of his origins. And he is the first emperor from the Near East. And this, this does actually, I think, impact enormously into the way he's perceived by contemporaries. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now.
Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I will also say, um, that's completely fascinating, and, and I will also say that there's a line in, in the book that made me sort of close it and walk around for a little bit, where, where you say, um, you mention a, a, a superstition, you say, if, if you left your house and the first person you saw was black, it signified bad luck, which, oof, they're not holding back um, at that point. Going back to religion, let's, let's, let's focus in on that. It just kind of blows my mind that for a couple of years, a big black stone was ahead of Jupiter in the divine roster in Roman history. It, never heard of that before. Absolutely bizarre. Let's just dig into to Elagabal a little bit. What was the religion? You, you talk about internals versus externals. I think that's a really interesting debate. And and what role does that play in sort of broader Roman religion in general, in terms of paganism, you know, being on its last legs, as you mentioned? Well, Roman paganism obviously is polytheistic. They can worship lots of gods. The standard attitude if they encounter a new god is what we call syncretism. They identify that god as being one of the gods they already know but worshipped in a different local way. They're usually quite inclusive. And they, they've been, the Romans have adopted um, lots of Eastern gods. It might not... And the problem is with Heliogabalus and his god, Elagabal isn't so much that it's Eastern, it's just as you said, it's that the emperor decides to replace Jupiter as the head of the gods with his own god. And I think this managed to upset every level of Roman society. I mean, it's the, along with his sexuality, it's the surefire way of annoying all four constituencies at once. I did talk, I talk quite a lot in the book about internals and externals of the religion of Elikbar. Because of the literary sources... And because of various art images, we do know a lot about the externals. We know what it looked like. We know what the home temple in Amisa looked like. We know what the stone looked like. We know a lot about its ceremonies. What we don't know is really anything of its internal workings, its cosmology. It certainly isn't as some later writers in antiquity thinking about Christianity. It's not a monotheistic religion. He's not trying to abolish the other gods. He's just trying to put his god at the top. And one thing I think was very interesting that really I only sort of came, discovered or, I don't know, dreamed up the idea when researching the book is that I think the young Heliogabalus, and we must never forget he was only 14 when he's put on the throne, he hadn't been born and bred and raised in the East in Amisa. His father was a strikingly successful and very unprincipled civil servant in our terms. And he'd been living and working in the West. And the young Heliogabalus was probably almost certainly born in Rome. Fascinatingly enough, he probably spent four years um, in Ibaracum, in York, uh, between the ages of four to eight, which is rather bizarre. He only goes to his ancestral hometown of Amisa shortly before the revolt. And to my mind, it looks very much, with a comparison to Marnie, the founder of Manichaeism, 
that he goes there and for the first time in his life, his young life, he's probably about 13, he's given a significant public role. He's, he's appointed chief priest of this god and it gives him independence. And I think it probably led to a thoroughgoing religious conversion. So it's um, the model I'm arguing, he's, he suddenly converts to this god. Yes, it's been the god of his ancestors, but it hasn't been the biggest thing in his life. He's not been surrounded by it. And now he's got something he can do on his own because a Roman childhood is very circumscribed. You know, first by nurses and your mother, then by teachers. Now he's doing something on his own and religion is the answer. And religion, I think, lurks behind almost all the weird things he does in his reign or he's accused of doing, with the exception of the sexuality, which a lot of modern scholars go, oh, well, stories about his orgies and, and his bizarre behaviour and marrying a man, taking the role of the bride. These are surely all just links to his religion. There's actually no evidence that the religion of Elikbal had any of these features in it whatsoever. So I, I would dissociate the two, as all the ancient sources do. One religious zealotry, two, in Roman terms, boundary-crossing sexuality. It tells you something about historical cynicism that you feel almost guilty in taking him at his word at how religious he was. I mean, but it, it seems very obvious to me that, that he really cared about it. So, okay, the elephant in the room, we've talked about, we sort of mentioned sexuality and, and mores. Let's start with the more traditional aspect, you know, Heliogabalus got married like a good Roman emperor, and and those were completely normal uh, relationships, right? Nothing surprising or unorthodox in them, right? Well, yes and no. He gets married. I mean, Roman emperors, Roman upper-class men, tend to be serial monogamists. You can only marry one wife at a time. No emperor ever marries as many women in as short a time as our boy. I mean, he's only on the throne for four years. We know he married at least four women. It may be the number may be as high as seven. Obviously, huge expense to the public purse because each one has to be massively celebrated. There are there are two, as it were, deviant things in his male female marriages. Um, one being that he marries a vestal virgin. I mean, I mean, there is no worse political move, religious move you can make. Um, the, the Vestal Virgins, they tend the sacred fire of Rome. If any of them are defiled, as it was put, then you know, Rome itself, the solace, the safety of Rome is threatened. He not only marries her once, he marries her twice. He divorces her, remarries her. And and then there's, of course, his behaviour within his marriages, which a contemporary Cassius Dio rather coyly and primly says, he did shameful things within his marriages, implying sexuality probably I and mean, the two things there one is the the phoenician thing it, it's the oral sex thing again coming back to that um the other thing that fascinates me is how did anyone know but there again there's that weird difference between upper class romans and us in you look at various works of art and there's a picture of a couple having sex it's um it's loving sex. They're obviously man and wife usually. And you know, there's a nice bed and sometimes there's a table with some refreshments nearby. And there's a slave in the room. And that's the weird bit. Because, you know, obviously if an upper class man's having sex with his wife, he obviously needs a slave to hand him a glass of wine when he needs a break. I mean, and so 
it, it raises that whole wonderful difference between their attitudes to privacy and ours. Even in his normal, normal male female marriage sexuality, even there, he he's no, he's not normal. Well, I mean, you, and you mentioned there, sort of quite loaded the male female marriages. Of course, he that's not where he stopped, right? He he also married Ben. He married at least one man, and he took the bride's role, um, Heracles, who's a charioteer, who has the lucky break of crashing his chariot in front of the emperor his helmet tumbling off and the emperor seeing his tousled blonde hair and whisking him back to the palace. He nearly married another man, but the other man was actually brought to the palace from Asia Minor, a man called Zoticus, an athlete, and he was brought because of the enormous size of his member. And he comes to the palace, but then Heracles slips um, an antaphrodisiac to poor old Zoticus, so... Zoticus doesn't perform as he's expected, and so he's sent into exile and thus saving his life. It's it the one answer amongst modern scholars is to say none of this is true. It's all just later propaganda written after the guy was dead. And that that's a line I very much take issue with in the book, because the sources the two contemporary sources we have, yes, they live through his reign, and yes, they're writing after his reign. But the idea they merely trot out propaganda, the official line put out by his successor, is clearly wrong, because one of them, in fact, isn't writing under his successor, and neither of them ultimately terribly approved of his successor. They had no reason just to trot out propaganda. So it's, I mean, that's one of the things that's fascinating about his life, other sources we have, because... They're, I think because they're obscure, Cassius Dio, Herodian and the Augustan history are not in university reading lists usually. And I think that's why the story of Heliogabalus is almost forgotten in modern popular thinking, because he wasn't written about by Suetonius or Tacitus. And thus he, he doesn't have go down as a famous baddie like Caligula or Nero because of the sources who wrote about him. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. So another thing that the sources explore quite heavily uh, is his relationship to gender, uh, which which I found completely fascinating. And, and, and there's a moment where he asks someone to to call him a lady. Could you just delve into that a little bit, please? You know, related both to sexuality and just generally to identity. Well, his his attitude to gender is obviously bound up with his sexuality. Perhaps we approach it by thinking about thinking about Roman sexuality in general terms, our modern categories, homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual, just don't fit. They just don't work. I mean, you can't find a word in Latin or Greek that nearly translates any of them. It seems that what was important was not the gender of the person or the people you liked having sex with. It was much more whether you were active or passive in the sexual act. And so if you're an elite Roman, it's 
fine to have sex with other males, providing you're the active one and providing the males you're having sex with are essentially not other elite males. Now, what Heliogabalus does is openly flaunts enjoying the passive role, or as Cassius Dio puts it rather coyly, playing the woman's part in sex with other men, uh, which is deeply shocking. But then with the gender thing, he seems to go further, and he he is said to have asked the palace physicians, uh, would it be possible to actually have a physical sex change? And luckily for him, given the state of medicine at the time, the answer was no, you'll die. So his his attitude to gender is, is very fluid. And this is one of the things that is very interesting. In the modern world, he's hardly remembered at all. One of the few places he is in is some of the really wilder fringes of the LBGQ plus community, where he's been transformed into a hero, or as, as it's put, a queer icon which is, it's kind of odd, but I suppose making anyone a hero is kind of odd because you have to concentrate on the stuff that fits your view and marginalise the rest, but never more so than with Heliogabalus because to turn him into a queer icon, you have to concentrate entirely on his attitude to gender and sexuality and completely ignore everything else about him. The fact he's massively irresponsible, he's massively profligate, that he's a religious zealot, and, of course, that he's murderous. I mean, he kills people for no good reason. He kills his own tutor with his own hand. So you, you, all that has to be shoved aside to focus on just one aspect of him. And, of course, to judge him positively is on that is even an anachronistic judgment because contemporaries were judging him very negatively. Or contemporaries in the main were... I mean, as I explore in the book, there are hints here or there that actually maybe there were a significant minority who actually appreciated his attitude to sexuality and would have shared it or at least found it less than offensive, unlike, as it were, the moral majority of Rome. But the whole issue is very... It's obviously now highly politicised and very delicate, Um because with this book, there was some criticism online before anyone could have read it, because the title of the book was The Mad Emperor. And, yeah, um, well, the title of the book comes directly from Cassius Dio, who was a contemporary who called him mad. Um, and, I, you know, I wasn't implying any value judgment on modern trans women or anything. I was just repeating what Cassius Dio said, that by contemporary terms our boy Heliogabalus was indeed mad. I actually wrote down the list um, going through the book of a way of describing him. Polyamorous trans bisexual pacifist, sex positive sex worker, anti-elite class warrior, iconoclastic religious reformist, person of colour who began his life as a refugee. Um, so that is that is a version. But the other version, of course, is someone who was terribly naive, built a giant gold statue of himself and, you know, murdered at will. But I think just digging into that that debate, you know, obviously there has been chronic underrepresentation in historiography of queer people. And, and so that's on the one side. On the other hand, you, you don't want to be anachronistic. You know, wading a little bit into the politics there, do you think there is a role for finding feminist icons, queer icons, you know, people of colour icons in history? Or, or do you think that that should be separate from, from contemporary politics? 
No, I think there's definitely a role for fi- for finding these people and for giving them a voice as far as one can. But at the same time, I do think it has to be done in a nuanced and sympathetic way because otherwise you're merely just imposing content- our value judgments onto another culture, which you know is something that you know we really shouldn't do at any point, whether the culture is now or back then. You've got to let these people talk for themselves and live in their own world. Uh, it's, it's one thing, because I, I also write a lot of historical novels, and it's one thing that always just depresses and bores and irritates me with bad modern historical novels written about, especially Rome, is that so many people just take a modern person, all complete with modern attitudes and values, sticks them in fancy dress in a toga or whatever, or dresses them up as a centurion, and sticks them in the past. And you just think, no, no, this... It's just sort of deeply patronising to the past and to your readers, really, to homogenise everything into being just like us. But but the flip side is is you know it becomes increasingly uh, difficult to empathise with a historical figure if you can't, to some extent, project. And and you are very empathetic at points to to various characters, and and you say in in final pages of. Of, of your sort of author's note that, um, that the past is something that should be felt and you should, you should reach, it shouldn't be dry and boring. It's a hard needle to thread, right? That, you know, on the one hand, don't project. And on the other hand, you have to empathize. Yeah. And I think also as a historian, you need to make allowances for your reader's enjoyment. As you say, I mean, history, unless you're a student studying this and you've been set to read it, I mean, the book I'm writing, yes, to inform people and make them think and do that sort of compare and contrast of thinking, well, that's very like us, that's very different. But you're also hoping they actually enjoy the story. And in The Mad Emperor, I have kind of used every technique I've learnt from writing and publishing 14 novels to try and drop you into that moment, um, of whether it's, you know, the the incredible nighttime sort of flight that starts the revolt as uh, the teenage boy wearing someone else's clothes is ushered secretly out of uh, Mimisa and ushered off to an army camp, or whether it's that final night when he's in the Praetorian camp still hoping against hope that the soldiers won't kill him. Um, Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right. And you do have to project, but I think you can project without turning them into us and without simplification and what what there's a great quote which i can't remember word for word from mary reno who's one of my heroes um one of the greatest historical novelists ever and she said something like um the pleasure of writing about and reading about the past is the tension between what is universal to people and what is very specific to that time and place and, I, and without wanting to sound too much like Mary Beard, um, Rome is always good to think with because you just can't help but think that's similar to us, that's different from us. And when you're thinking about Rome, or indeed any historical period and culture, you are, even if it's unconsciously, reflecting on the culture that you live in and you can't not be. You, I mean, historians aren't just writing in a vacuum. We're, 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 and you're not reading in a vacuum. You're, you're actually a, a person here and now in whichever culture drawing those comparisons and those contrasts. 
One final question. That was a beautiful, beautiful answer. Um, one final question from me, which is the inside of the, the book cover and a constant theme throughout his story is the idea of the dinner party. It is the site of class warfare. Arguably, it's the site of humiliation, of sort of sexual exploration and, and violation. And it's it's the site of a lot of Victorian decadence narratives that come later. Firstly, could you speak a little bit about about that, about the place that it plays in class and, and decadence? And then secondly, would you go to a Heliogabalus um, dinner party if invited? Right. Um, the famous dinner party, the Roses of Heliogabalus, um, it's almost certainly never happened is one really sad thing. It features in an ancient source called the August, we call the Augustan History, a series of biographies, which I absolutely love because they're not, they're extraordinary. They claim to be by six people writing about 300 AD. They're not. They're written by one person 100 years later. We have no idea why this unknown person launched this huge literary fraud on the world. What he did with the dinner party is he had read Suetonius and he knew that Nero had dinner parties with uh, special ceilings that um, dropped perfume and flowers on the guests. And so he took that and gave it to Heliogabalus, but then added the really macabre twist of a lethal amount of flowers falling on the guests. Now, in the Augustan history, they're actually violets. They're not roses at all. And it's the 19th century romantic painter and orientalist painter, Sir Lawrence Armitadema, who then changes them to roses and changes a few other things and creates, as far as he's known at all, the image of Heliogabalus, the decadence, the sexuality from that. And um, I think since that painting, I think it was 1880-something, it was exhibited at the Royal Academy, I think almost everyone has viewed Heliogabalus through the prism of that picture. Would I go to a dinner party given by him? Um, yeah, if I'm on the high table, because you're safe there. <laughs> and providing he hasn't, you know, decided, it's not one of those dinners when he's releasing wild animals into it to see the reactions of his guests. Or, or making you run around naked. Uh, wasn't that another one? Oh, well, the extremely exhausting one, at least according to Augustan history, where you had to have a different course of the meal in a different palace and you had to race across Rome in chariots. And in between that, you also had to have a sex with a different woman between each course. I think, as I say in the book, it's a good job there aren't many stories of elderly senators being invited because you know, quite clearly it is physically beyond most of us, let alone an elderly senator. <laughs> it is honestly remarkable that I hadn't heard this story before. As you can probably tell from listening to this, there is so much more um, to read about in, in the brilliant book, The Mad Emperor. Harry, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And uh, thank you for writing this book. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. This episode starred Harry Sidebottom and was presented and produced by Luke Naylor Perrett. The series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. If you enjoyed the episode, do rate, review and subscribe. And check out some of our past history podcasts, like my interviews with the BBC's Greg Jenner and Wild Swan's author Yong Chang. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.